Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Neighborhood Podcast. I'm one of the hosts of the podcast, Kevin Valentin. And I'm the other host of the podcast. My name is Kyle Davro. Kevin, what is good, my guy? What's popping on this Thursday night? Hey, man, watching a close game with the Chiefs and the Chargers. Been a busy day, busy work week, quite honestly. But, dude, super excited. Um, you know, I know Kyle and I had mentioned earlier uh, a couple of weeks ago that we had partnered with Electrocast Media. Um, as of tonight, we are fully set up and ready to post our audio on their platform, which is Megaphone. So we are looking forward to uploading and starting the journey with the team. So, you know, shout out to Greg, shout out to Russ, super, super big help with, uh, with the program tonight. And we look forward to working with the team, but you know, without further ado, we really want to get this episode started. So, I mean, Kyle today, we got a lot to cover, got a couple of games that we're looking forward to for the NFL week two, uh, you know, Raphael. Nope, not Nadal. Excuse me, wrong one. Roger Federer has announced his retirement after the upcoming tournament. Um, I mean, 21 Grand Slam titles. A legend, a walking, living legend, one of the greatest tennis players of all time. Uh, arguably one of the greatest, if not the greatest male player of all time. It really depends on who you ask. Um, of course, we have some fantasy football news that we're going to cover as well. Just a couple of little tidbits that Kyle and I have thrown together. But in terms of the slate of games, we're going to go over the New Orleans Saints versus the um, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, a division matchup in the NFC South. It's going to be one for the books. New Orleans seems to have Tampa's number in the regular season, so that's going to be a very big, pivotal division matchup. Then we're going to move right into the Cincinnati Bengals going to the Dallas Cowboys. Both teams had a disappointing loss in week one. Cincinnati obviously had five turnovers in game one. Dallas lost of course, Dak Prescott for potentially two months. So we're going to see how Cooper Rush can do, of course. And then we're going to move right into the Sunday night slate in an NFC North showdown. The Chicago Bears dodged a bullet and won what looked to be a monsoon game against the San Francisco 49ers last week. So they improved to 1-0. and And then Green Bay fell absolutely short, choking against Minnesota. And they are down to 0-1. So that's going to be a huge, huge, huge matchup for us. And then, of course, now that this game has pretty much almost just gone final at this point. Uh, we're probably going to dive right into the Kansas City Chiefs game. It looks like they're about to scrape away with a win. And unfortunately, it looks like Justin Herbert might finish this game with what appears to be a lower back, if not lower side injury. Uh, I would assume, again, since I'm not a doctor, it looked to be like a lower rib injury, maybe an abdomen injury, but we will see what happens when we get reports later on through the evening. But I mean, Kyle, we got a lot to go with tonight, man. We got a lot to talk about. Oh, 100%. And like you said, uh, just to start off the week two game slate, uh, we're going to go over the New Orleans Saints and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers matchup taking place on Sunday. So 
if you look back at week one, uh, both teams were victorious. Uh, the New Orleans Saints came off of a comfort behind victory, scoring 17 points in the fourth quarter. Uh, that got them a one-point victory over the Atlanta Falcons on the road. And then to kick it over to Tampa, Tampa went on the road to play the Dallas Cowboys. They ended up winning by the score of 19-3. to um, Offensively, uh, they were able to move the ball effectively, but they just weren't able to cash in on touchdowns, but their defense played outstanding against the Dallas Cowboys. But like Kevin said, this is a extremely pivotal uh, divisional matchup between both teams, and it just seems that since Tom Brady has arrived in Tampa, the Saints just have the Buccaneers number. Throughout the regular season, since Tom has arrived, the Saints have won every matchup. And once again, both teams will meet up on Sunday, and they'll duke it out to see who comes out on top. So, Kevin, to kick this one to you, with the Saints going up against the Bucks in this upcoming NFC South matchup, who do you think is going to come out on top and why? So it's it's tough, and I'm only going to say it's tough because Tom Brady's offensive line seems to be completely battered and bruised and just riddled with injuries. And I mean, for God's sakes, if I'm if I remember correctly, it looked like it even got worse as the week progressed. And they have some wide receivers on the injury report this week for practice as well. Godwin was hurt with a hamstring. I believe Mike Evans was on that list. Julio Jones was on that list. I mean, you name it, pretty much most of the starting lineup was limited at practice this week or reported on the injury report. So I'm thinking that they'll be able to muster it through. But in terms of the offensive line's ineptitude to stay healthy, I think that I'm going to give this edge to the Saints just because the pass rush was really able to rattle Tom and the offense wasn't necessarily able to get into a rhythm. Uh, Obviously, Leonard Fournette had himself a massive, massive game last week, and I believe that that is going to also kind of transcend into this game. But again, it's going to be dependent upon how effective Tom can be and if he can stay upright. Now, on the New Orleans side, Mike, Mike, uh, wow, Michael Thomas, I was about to say Mike Evans, Michael Thomas had himself a resurgent comeback game with two touchdowns. Jarvis Landry seemed to be open the entire game. So Jameis was able to distribute the ball pretty evenly. But it looked like Alvin Kamara, I believe, is limited with an injury of his own. So they did sign Latavius Murray this week. It's just a matter of how consistent they're going to be on the floor, on the ground as well. Uh, This game will probably be a toss-up, especially since it's in New Orleans, in the Dome. I believe that this is going to be really, really, really difficult for Tampa to come out on top. Now, I'm going to say that this is going to be a close game just for the sake of I believe that they're still going to be able to put up points, maybe somewhere between 21-17, 21-24, something like that. But I believe that New Orleans comes out on top. And I think that uh, Jameis Winston actually has himself a game. I think Jameis is going to go for about 250, 275, and maybe about three touchdowns. Yeah, and for me, I'm going to go with the opposite direction on this one. I am going to favor Tampa, despite the fact that essentially half their roster is on the injury report. Um, And then that also included Tom Brady. Tom Brady was on the injury report as well. So, you know, even the GOAT is not exempt from getting hurt from time to time. But I think by and large, I think those injuries are largely precautionary, except for maybe Chris Godwin. I think Godwin's probably going to miss this game. It seemed like that hamstring was bothering him in the second half of that Cowboys game. And after he injured it, didn't seem like uh, he was going to come back anytime soon. But overall, this is a great divisional game, but I think Tampa's finally going to be able uh, to get over the hump to beat New Orleans. Just when I look at the matchup, Kevin, I think outlined it pretty well. I think it's going to come down to whether or not that Tampa's going to be able to hold up on the offensive side of the ball, specifically with their offensive line. And when the Bucks were going up against the Cowboys last week, Let's face it, Tom was facing some pressure 
from Micah Parsons in particular. And throughout the game, Tom was not down a couple times. He was still able to get the ball out pretty effectively. But there was a point of emphasis that, you know, once they got into the red zone, their offensive line did not hold up well. And they weren't scoring touchdowns like we're accustomed to seeing Tampa score them. You know, it's kind of indicative of the score. They only scored 19 points in the season opener. Still got the win, but there was a lot of room for improvement after that first week win. And I think going into this game, I think they'll just be able to kind of refine certain aspects of the game plan. They may put more of an emphasis on trying to get the ball a little bit quicker to kind of counteract that pass rush they, they can get from New Orleans because, let's face it, New Orleans, whenever they play Tampa, they've been able to get after Tom effectively. And... Not only have they gotten him on the ground as far as sacks are concerned, they've been able to force bad throws from him and it lead to interceptions and eventually learn it leads to points in the other direction. And I think that that could happen in this game as well. I'm not going to discount that either. It's just, I think Tampa is going to probably squeak this one out simply just because I think Tom's going to be a lot more careful with the ball that he has been in the past when playing against the Saints. And even though that I'm giving Tampa the edge here, I definitely agree with you, Kev. I think that Jameis is going to be right there with him. Jameis has been solid in his tenure with the New Orleans Saints since he's arrived. And I understand that his season got cut short last year because of an ACL tear. But overall, he has been a model of consistency. And it's kind of crazy for me to say, knowing how many times he turned the ball over when he was playing quarterback in Tampa. But if he's able to continue an effective game plan as far as just staying consistent, completing about 60 to 70% of his passes... The Saints have every reason to win this game. It's just, I think that Jameis is probably just going to have a little bit of an off game, may throw an interception, even though he's actually been pretty solid in not turning the ball over when playing with New Orleans. But I think that Tampa's going to be able to capitalize off of one turnover against New Orleans, and I think that's going to give them a slight edge over New Orleans in this one. If I had to put a score on it, I think this game is going to be kind of like a mid-level scoring game. I don't think both teams are going to score over 30 points. I think this is going to be a game that's going to probably get settled around maybe like 24-17 or 24-21. I do believe that this will be a one-position game when it's all said and done, and I am going to favor Tampa in this one, and Tampa would bump up the 2-0 on the season. It's going to be tough. I mean, all divisional games are tough. Obviously, the NFC South, for this particular instance, these two teams love to go at it. They are literally competing at every end against one another, and I think ever since Tom got to... Tampa, it's kind of a little bit, it's lit a little bit of a fire under New Orleans to say, the GOAT ain't coming here and he ain't beating us. Granted, he beat them when it mattered most in the playoffs, but in terms of just that overall appearance for the Saints to kind of have that character, have that structure since Drew Brees has retired, um, they're holding fortitude. And I believe that that is in, in big dividends to, you know, obviously the supporting cast that's over there in New Orleans, led on that defensive side, you know, obviously Cam Jordan, Demario Davis, uh, Marcus Lattimore, and so many other players. So we're going to see what happens, but you know, uh, you know, we have plenty of plenty plenty more games to talk about tonight. And as we're talking, of course, Justin Herbert goes down the field and scores and throws a touchdown to Paul Jesse Palmer? No. Who what Palmer? I can't even tell. <laughs> Justin Herbert throws a touchdown and the score is now 23 to 27 with about a minute and 11 seconds to go. So obviously 24 to 27. Yep, it just happened. They got the extra point. Uh I'm looking at this and I'm saying they got to go for the onside kick. They have one timeout. They have to. And I, dude, onside kicks are crazy. The likelihood of it happening is 
not exactly high in terms of percentages, but we'll keep you guys posted yeah, as it goes Ke- along. Ke- Kev, let's just pivot here for a second because we both have the game up. I, obviously, on I Gamecast, know, on Gamecast. Oh, I I have the 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 Twitch app. Uh, oh, you opened Twitch Chrome. back up. You said I, you closed it. I did, but uh, listen. Obviously, they're not going to be able to see the game. We're just kind of commentating as it goes. We'll just see what happens with this onside kick because obviously that's what the Chargers have to do here. But I mean, just to kind of talk about the Chiefs game a little bit. I mean, Kev, I will say this: you said that the game was going to result in like a twenty-eight to twenty-four score. And I mean, you're right there. Now, granted, I know you picked the Chargers to win this game, but still, that was an impressive call with the score. I Appreciate thought it was going to be a little bit more high scoring, like maybe like thirty-four to twenty-eight. But overall, you know, when it comes to these AFC West games, man, they're super competitive. And this game oh, was yeah. no exception. But I will say, because I know we'll kind of get into this game in a little bit. But overall, I, Pat got away with some. Pat got away with probably like three or four interceptions in this game. If we're being 100% honest, <gasps> it's live. It's live. I think the Chiefs got it back, though. I'm pretty sure the Chiefs got it back. Yeah, it's the Chiefs. The Chiefs got it. Yeah, man. That ball was live. It was live. You saw that, right? You saw that. I did see that. He couldn't he couldn't hold it. He it slipped right out of his stomach. Yeah, it just it just slid right through. Man, I can't believe nobody oh, the Chargers, the, Chargers. the Chargers couldn't jump on it in time. Damn. Damn, and that Justin Herbert's got a sad face on. Yeah, so, I mean, this is a perfect segue to kind of dive right into this game because all the Chiefs got to do, essentially, is kneel it down. So, I, 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 Yeah, yeah, they're, they're going victory formation now, so... Yeah, it's it's over. Uh, what, uh, but, the Chargers only got one timeout, so... But, I mean, what a game, though. What a game. Oh, my God. But, uh, it, it lived up to the hype. It, it really did. We're talking about two of the most electrifying quarterbacks in football, obviously the most competitive division in football, so it's like... This game was like destined to be incredible, at least in my oh, opinion. Oh yeah, it's. I mean, look, we we've talked about this for a while now. Like when it comes to the AFC West, when it comes to these divisional games, you could basically make a case that all these games should be primetime games, just because of how stacked the division is. And I know it. It's kind of hard to like play it this way. Like, there's a team that's going to finish in last place in that division, but that doesn't mean that like they're exempt from playing like primetime games, right. because. The Raiders and the Chargers in week one were going back and forth. That was a competitive game. And, you know, obviously, you know, in this game in particular with the Chargers and the Chiefs, I mean, everybody was kind of expecting it to be a good game and it definitely lived up to expectations. But, you know, when it comes to these AFC West games, they're going to be slugfests. Like these are going to be like rock'em sock'em robots here. I'd be surprised so, if there were any blowouts this year. And I know I say that like gently because all of the quarterbacks are easily capable of putting up 28 to 35 points with their arms alone. I don't know necessarily about, you know, Derek Carr, but I mean, we're, we know that he's capable of putting up good numbers. So, I mean, this, this game in and of itself was a solid game to kind of start the week. Obviously, it ended up not in my prediction. It ended in the favor of Kansas City. So, I mean, diving right into it. Score final was 27-24. Kyle predicts the win. Good for you. I was a point off from predicting the score, which I'll take my own moral victories for this. Um, <laughs> I mean, we'll kind of just dive right into it. Kyle, I'll start with you. What are your thoughts on the uh, on the outcome of this game for the first matchup between the Chiefs and the Chargers? 
Well, I think this game lived up to expectations. When it comes to the Chargers and the Chiefs, these are some of the best teams in the NFL. And based off of our own power rankings from last week, I mean, both these teams were in the top five. Uh, the Chiefs were basically damn near at the top, and the Chargers were at number five. And it's just indicative of what I think these teams are going to be for the rest of the year. Even though that the Chargers lost this game, it doesn't mean that they're just going to fall apart and the Chiefs are just going to reign supreme. I think the Chargers are going to be there every step of the way. And granted, let's put this into perspective. This is week two. And let's face it, both teams are not at their top level yet. A lot of teams are still figuring out, and these two teams with the Chiefs and the Chargers are no exception. Uh, there were some throws by Patrick Mahomes specifically in this game. When I look back to on the Chiefs side here, Patrick got away with about three or four possible interceptions, and some of them were actually interceptions that got called back because of a defensive penalty or offsetting penalties, or it got overturned by review. And that was really indicative by what the Chargers were bringing defensively. Joey Boza and Khalil Mack were bringing pressure all night. And it definitely influenced Patrick on some of his throws. Because even though statistically, Patrick did played very well. That's just based off of numbers. When you actually watch the game, Patrick was facing pressure the entire night. And by and large, he was able to play pretty effectively. But he got away with some. There's no doubt about that. And with Justin Herbert... Justin Herbert was playing a fantastic game up until the fourth quarter when he threw that pick six that basically changed the entire complexion of the game. Because at that point, the game was tied. I believe the score was 17-17. to 17. The yep. Chargers are on the three-yard line, and it's first down. Basically, worst-case scenario is it ends in a turnover. But best-case scenario, they either get a touchdown or they get a field goal, and at least the Chargers are up against KC with about half of the fourth quarter left. He gets he gets picked off. The Chiefs run it back for a touchdown. It's now 24-17 in favor of the Chiefs. That, to me, changed the entire complexion of the game because up until that point, the, the Chargers had a pretty comfortable lead, but give credit where credit is due. Patrick and that Chiefs offense, they were able to get back into a groove and march the ball down the field effectively and get some points on the board. But that turnover by Justin Herbert, he panicked. There's no other way to say it. The Chiefs brought pressure right at the middle. He got in his face. He threw the ball sidearm. And the Chiefs jumped on it for a touchdown. Now, the biggest thing that I could take away from this game is both teams are still, I think, figuring it out. Like I said, this is early September. This is not the top version of these teams yet. So both teams are going to learn lessons when they watch this game on film, uh, probably throughout this weekend. But overall, you know, I did pick the Chiefs to win this one, and they did end up you know, getting a pretty close victory here. But I think the biggest concern, and Kevin, I think you're probably going to touch on this pretty soon here, is the injury that Justin Herbert sustained with looked like a an abdomen injury or possibly a rib injury. But that's something that we're going to have to monitor moving forward. But still, I would say overall, it was a good win by the Chiefs in a very comp close competitive match. Yeah, I'm right there with you, man. I mean, quite honestly, I looked at this game right when the schedule came out, and I said, this is must-see television. And for the most part, we were able to watch a lot of it. And I'm looking at this, and I'm saying, the quarterback duel was great. It didn't disappoint. The only turnover was, of course, Justin Herbert's pick six, like Kyle already alluded to. I'm looking at this, and I'm saying, there's one thing that I'm not happy with. Justin Herbert threw the ball 48 times. 
a lot, a lot, a lot of those pass plays were play actions, were bootlegs, were rollouts, were you know throwing in motion off your right foot, uh, or you know throwing off of the right side. And I'm just sitting there like, there were a lot of play actions, but there were no run plays. I mean, for the most part, they they ran the ball a total of 24 times for only 75 yards. I don't understand when you run as much play action as they do for them not to run the ball as much as they didn't. It just, to me, it didn't make up. I had mentioned it to Kyle a couple of times, and then it just literally continued to happen. And it was like play action after play action after play action. And there was one drive in the fourth where they were pinned within their own 10-yard line, and it was three straight play action plays to where two were incomplete passes, and then he was sacked on third down. So I'm looking at this, and I'm saying... Maybe the play calling has to change just a little bit. I mean, I get it. Justin Herbert is one of the most prolific quarterbacks in the league. You have to lean on your best player. But Austin Eckler was getting decent chunks of yards here and again. And, of course, you don't have to necessarily just roll right out of a shotgun position and have a play action designated for you immediately. You have to change it up, change the formation, get under center, you know, get in a different formation. I'm old-fashioned. Bring back some of the eye. Again, I just it depends on the play calling, the offensive coordinator. I'm not necessarily someone who studies the formations as much as I used to, nor am I a Chargers fan. So I'll leave that where it is. But in terms of where the Chiefs were successful, um, they ran the ball effectively. I would say that because of Edwards Hilaire's big breakout run at, on that last Kansas City drive, obviously that kind of carried the most, the, the most yards uh, available to them during that game. But prior to that, it wasn't necessarily incredible. Uh, but Patrick Mahomes, like Kyle said, man, there were a couple plays. Pat got away with some. I'll leave it at that. But that Charger front four, that Charger front five, it, it ain't no joke, man. There were eight QB hits on Kansas City's side. Pat was on his back quite a bit. There were a couple plays where if it wasn't on his back, he was getting pressured and had to get rid of it. Um, Khalil Mack and Joey Bosa are no joke. That is the easy answer for the best tandem in terms of the best pass rushers in football on the same team. Uh, that duo is going to absolutely wreak havoc throughout the entire season. So I would say that the Chargers need to build off of that. J.C. Jackson got burned in one instance to where, you know, one of their tight ends got turned him around and he missed a deflection by, I want to say, the length of my pinky. It was just super, super missed time that I mean, like, I'm not even joking. If he jumps a quarter of a millisecond earlier, he probably later he probably breaks that play up, but neither here nor there. It's not going to be about what ifs. Um, the Chargers didn't execute in that one play. You know the Chiefs were able to capitalize on it, get some points on the board. I look forward to the next time these two teams face off. And again, I will say this again and again: anytime this division plays each other, I just I gotta watch it. I mean, it's must see TV as far as I'm concerned, and. You know, even for the first Thursday night game, I think that the NFL kind of knocked it out with the park on this one because at least they put up two competitive teams, you know, coming out of the AFC West. Now, when it comes to next week's Thursday night game, when it comes to the Steelers and the Browns, I'm not 100% sure on that. I don't think that one's going to be nearly as competitive or nearly as entertaining as what this, uh, not the NFC, the AFC West matchup that we have with the Chiefs and the Chargers here. Now, to kind of keep this this storyline going in regards to this Chiefs and the Chargers game. Obviously, there's a huge part that we have to take into account here. And that was Justin Herbert's injury that he sustained in the fourth quarter. And Kevin, you and I were both watching the game. And he took a pretty nasty spill uh, after releasing a pass where he landed um, on his back. And it seemed like maybe like the helmet from the Chiefs player kind of like brushed up against his side or maybe he landed 
on his oblique or maybe like on his ab or maybe on his ribs and was definitely wincing in a lot of pain after that hit. Now, the question that I have for you is, is how damaging do you think that this injury could be for not only Justin Herbert, but for the Chargers as a whole, if Justin is actually going to miss some time with this injury? Well, thankfully, it was a Thursday night game, so he has extra time to recuperate before next week. Um, I believe that worst case scenario, maybe a fractured rib, you know, best case scenario, maybe a bruised rib. Uh, We've seen plenty of players play with a whole lot worse. I mean, for God's sake, I think Cam Newton at one point had about two or three fractured ribs and he played with like a kind of like an upper brace for the the latter portion of the remainder of that season. And he went out there and he still did what he needed to do. And that was a mobile quarterback. So again, kudos to Cam for being a warrior. Um, Depending on the diagnosis, depending on what it is with the actual injury, I would say that the Chargers are going to be fine. I think the fact that he was able to push through the rest of the game showed that it probably wasn't anything of significance. But again, I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to sit here and say um, I'm 100% correct. It could be anything. But I, I will say I will, I will err on the side of caution. And if you know he needs to be held out of practice for the week to kind of you know receive treatment and you know limit contact at that point, then you know so be it. But I think that he'll be fine. It's just a matter of what the doctors end up finding out when they kind of, you know, go through the x-ray process, the testing process. And, you know, if he were to miss some significant time, whether that's a couple weeks or so, I think that absolutely, like, puts a massive hole in the air balloon that is the Chargers season. I'm not saying that it deflates because obviously it's not like a DAC injury where hopefully God willing, knock on wood, it doesn't require any surgery or anything like that. But probably miss two, three weeks, depending on what it is. And I think that the Chargers will still be able to find a way to push through. Uh, we've already talked about earlier on a couple weeks ago that their schedule now isn't necessarily um, easy, but it's a little bit more favorable. So if they have to lean on Austin Eckler and, you know, kind of, you know, do what they need to do to get past a couple of different teams in the upcoming weeks, I think they'll be able to do so. But it's just a matter of, again, what the significance of the injury is and if Justin Herbert can play with it or not. I think probably the most encouraging part that I saw from Justin Herbert was the fact that he was able to play through it. But you could tell there was definitely some discomfort because that first drive that he went back out after getting that supposed rib injury, oblique injury, abdominal injury, whatever it is, you could tell he was just trying to get that ball out as quickly as possible and not take any more damage on that side that he landed on uh, earlier in the fourth quarter. I think when it comes to him, I think he's going to be going to be really sore uh, when it comes to, you know, waking up on Friday. He's definitely going to be in a little bit of pain. You know, as far as I'm concerned, you know, hopefully best case scenario is it's probably just like a bruised rib. You know, it's something that he could probably just manage throughout the week. And like you said, Kev, the fact that this game took place on a Thursday might be a silver lining with him just because now he's going to basically have a week and a half to recover from whatever this injury actually is. And hopefully that he's ready to go for week three. But I will say this, you know, the fact that he was able to lead the Chargers on a touchdown drive with just about a minute left in the game in that fourth quarter, uh, you got to give the kid credit. He was able to gut it out. Obviously, he was in a little bit of pain, probably a lot more pain than I could tolerate in the moment, but I I got to give the kid credit. I imagine that adrenaline just kind of carried him through towards the end part of the game, and the fact that he was able to lead them on a touchdown drive it definitely shows some resilience. It definitely shows some grit on his on his part. And uh, ho- hopefully for him, uh, it's nothing serious. Hopefully it's just like a small little ding that he could recover from pretty quickly. But at first look, it looked like it was a, a pretty nasty injury. But um, 
I will give the kid credit. You know, he was able to bounce back pretty quickly and get back in there. So hopefully it's something too serious for him because let's face it, Justin's a playmaker. And without the, without Justin, uh, the Chargers would definitely take a step back if he was out for any considerable amount of time. Yeah, we're just going to keep an eye on it. There isn't really much else we can say at this point just because it literally just happened. We'll probably get a report more than likely by the time we finish recording because it's just always how it works. Yeah. They'll probably get him into an x-ray machine. They'll fly yeah. back to L.A. tonight, and then he'll probably do further testing the rest of the week as it progresses. So not gonna do it, I'm not really going to harp on it too much. Uh, I will say, though, one of the coolest plays of the game was when Derwin James suplexed the shit out of Travis Kelsey at the goal line. That was insane. Yo. I mean, he uh, that dropped was some, him. That, that was some that WWE like, powerbomb yeah. type shit. Oh, 100%. And not only that, I mean, you want to talk about standout plays. Kev, I mean, Mike Williams with that one-hander. One-hander? This is nasty. It was a perfect ball, too. Yeah, so, placement, was, everything, everything. But, I mean, you know, give KC credit. They battled back because the Chargers were up in that game. They were up 17-7 to at one point. And uh, I got to give Patrick credit. You know, it's a little bit of a different wide receiving cast that he's been used to compared to what he's had in his past. And, you know, so far, it's been effective. I mean, there, there are some guys that he's throwing to that I never heard of before. But still putting points on the board. But that, dude, that Chargers pass rush is something different. I mean, once those boys pin their ears back, it's game on. And that's something I think that's going to keep the Chargers extremely relevant throughout that throughout this season. That defense is no joke. So, Two uh, all-pros, man. Two all-pros. Ain't no joke. And then you got Derwin James, J.C. Jackson, Asante Samuel Jr. on the back with Kyle Van Noy in the middle. That defense has got players, dude. There's no denying that. They just got to continue to show out. Yeah. And as time goes on, the chemistry will build. It's only week two. They got a long way to go still. Long way. But with that said, uh, we're going to transition to our next segment. We're going to focus on a, I would say, an interconference rivalry. And that is going to be the Bengals versus the Cowboys. And just to kind of give you guys a quick recap of what these teams did in week one. Uh, the Bengals are coming off probably one of the more shocking losses in week one, losing to the Pittsburgh Steelers in overtime. And let's face it, the Bengals did not have a good game in any way, shape, or form. They were turning the ball over quite consistently against a pretty good Steelers defense. They had five turnovers, to be exact, and definitely was looking like a team that was coming off of a Super Bowl hangover, even though that they lost that Super Bowl last year to the Rams in Super Bowl 56. And then they kick it over to the Cowboys. Uh, the Cowboys had a pretty disappointing effort. Uh, the biggest news coming from that game was Dak Prescott leaving that game with a broken thumb that required surgery. He's supposed to miss the next six to eight weeks. Uh, Jerry Jones has kind of refuted that, hoping that Dak would come back a little bit sooner, but we'll kind of see in that regard. Time will tell on that one. But the Cowboys only scored three points against Tampa. Their offense was definitely lacking in any sort of consistent effort on that side. Other defense played pretty solid, though. They were able to get some pretty effective pass rushes against Tom Brady, but still a lot of room left to be desired if you're the Dallas Cowboys. So, Kevin, to kick this one to you, with the Cincinnati Bengals going up against the Dallas Cowboys in this Week 2 matchup, which team do you think has more pressure to win this game, the Cowboys or the Bengals? 
Well, I mean, pressure-wise, I'm going to have to say the Cowboys. I mean, you, you have to dispute what people are saying about their season being over. If you're Cooper Rush, the weight of the world is on your shoulders to prove all the doubters, you know, like, wrong. We all know that you're capable of winning big games. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, it was last season uh, or two years ago that he led the Cowboys to a uh, victory in Minnesota. And I believe that that went relatively well. I mean, C.D. Lamb had that crazy athletic catch in the end zone, and they ended up winning. But for the sake of Joe Burrow, I'm saying this is a prove-it game. This is a wake-up game. This is a, oh, shit, if we lose again, this doesn't look good. We shouldn't have lost last week. We cannot lose to a backup quarterback in Dallas. So I'm looking at this, and I'm saying pressure-wise, definitely got to be on the Dallas Cowboys. Obviously, they underperformed. Three points were scored last week. Micah Parsons was the only positive in that actual game for them. And, of course, the run game was completely lackluster. Ezekiel Elliott and Tony Pollard were not able to get into a consistent rhythm. And, obviously, CeeDee Lamb was not able at all to show he was going to be the number one wide receiver for this team moving forward. Now, transitioning over to Cincinnati, Joe Burrow had five turnovers by himself. Hands, hands down, bar none, absolutely embarrassing performance. Did he lead them back when it mattered the most? Yes. Did special teams lose them this game at the end? Yes. But Cincinnati shouldn't have been there in the first place. So as the quarterback of this team, as one of the better quarterbacks in this league, you are not going to receive an excuse or a pass from me. So he needs to do better. Now from a special team side, Evan McPherson, former Gators, got to do a whole lot better. You cannot afford to be missing field goals. You cannot be affording to miss extra points. I know that one of them was blocked. I know on the other, the laces were turned. You have to find a way. Special teams as a whole needs to get it together and make sure that these mistakes do not happen. The last point I'm going to make on Cincinnati, Micah Parsons is going to come and kill Joe Burrow. Cincinnati, Zach Taylor, I'm looking at you. If you don't find a way to protect this man, he's going to die before the season ends. There's, 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 there's no discussions about it. You're talking about probably one of the best up-and-coming pass rushers in the league. He's going to come after Joe in every facet of the word. You're going to have to legit double him any side he lines up against. Motion a tight end, have a running back come to chip him, have a wide receiver motion across the chip. You cannot let him go one-on-one with anybody on that line because at the end of the day, if Pittsburgh was able to sack you seven times last week, Micah Parsons is probably going to try to get at least half of that by himself. Cincinnati has a lot to prove in terms of rebounding from last week. Dallas has definitely got all the pressure to say, we cannot go 0-2 and prove all these naysayers right without Dak Prescott. I mean, Kevin, I'm with you on this one, but when I look at this matchup, when it comes to pressure, I actually think it's the Bengals here that have more pressure than the Cowboys because let's face it, when Dak went out with that thumb injury last week against the, uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, we both said it. We think that that effectively ends the Cowboys season, despite when Dak may come back, just because I don't see a lot of production coming from the Cowboys offense, even if Dak comes back. And the three points that they scored against Tampa is kind of indicative of that. So as far as pressure is concerned, I actually think it's the Bengals here. Because Kevin, like you outlined, A lot of the issues that the Bengals faced as a team last year, they showed up in week one. And the biggest one was that they couldn't protect Joe Burrow. Because we all remember that AFC divisional game that the Bengals were a part of against the Tennessee Titans. And Joe Burrow got sat nine times in that game. Granted, the Bengals did win. But at the expense of Joe Burrow getting sat nine times, that is not a good look. And the fact that the Bengals made such 
an investment to rebolster their offensive line by bringing guys in like Alex Kappa from the uh, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. You brought in Ted Karras from the New England Patriots. And the fact that they were still able to give up that many sacks in the first week, the offensive line's got to step it up tremendously. And not only to protect Joe Burrow, but also to open up run lanes for Joe Mixon. So looking at the Bengals here, this is a must-have a game from them. Because if they go down 0-2 in the division, I'm not saying that this is something that we have to really be concerned with the Bengals moving forward. But an 0-2 start for this team would be quite shocking based on just the all, basically just amount of the talent that they have at their disposal. I mean, Joe Burrow's coming off of a solid year last year. We were the mindset that he was going to ball out this year because of the changes on the offensive line. But if, if they can't get that type of production on the offensive line to protect Joe Burrow, it could throw this whole season not to an absolute disaster, but it would definitely leave things a little bit more unbalanced than we originally anticipated. And when it comes to what I think is going to happen in this game in particular, I think the Bengals are going to wipe the floor with this one. I think the Bengals are going to get back to a 500 record. I think Joe Burrow is going to have an outstanding game because I just don't have a lot of faith that that Cowboys defense is going to be able to hold up against what the Bengals can present. And I understand that the Cowboys had a pretty def- they had a pretty solid defensive performance last week. They only gave up 19 points to Tampa. But even though that they only gave up 19 points, Tampa was moving the ball up and down the field pretty effectively. They just couldn't cash in on touchdowns. And I think that Joe Burrow and that Bengals offense are probably going to look at the tape and they're going to probably look at some of the mistakes that Tampa made in the red zone last week. And I think they're going to try to capitalize on that. And I think when you come off of a game where you have five turnovers altogether from Joe Burrow specifically, he's going to get it back. I wouldn't be surprised if Joe Burrow goes out there, throws for 350 yards passing and throws three or four touchdowns to get Cincinnati back into a rhythm. This is a must prove it game for them just to kind of get back to a 500 record because if they fall 0-2, that'd be quite a shocking start for the Cincinnati Bengals. But overall, I think Cincinnati is going to come out on top on this one. I hope that they do. I mean, again, I love Joe. Um, I love the the wide receiving core. I love that the team as a whole kind of remained together for the most part and obviously made additions where they needed to. It's just that those three men need to step up and that entire offensive line needs to make sure that (laughs) that man that is getting the ball, that is throwing the ball, he needs to stay up. If he doesn't stay up, the Cincinnati Bengals season is almost as a complete wash as the Cowboys because you cannot win games religiously when your franchise is legitimately on his back the majority of the game. So I'm just looking at this and I'm saying, do your job, play effectively, and I think, personally, Trayvon Diggs is about to get cooked. You think Jamar so? Chase, Jamar Chase is a man on a mission, and he is just out there to just like dice up everybody. He's coming for blood. He mm-hmm. feels that he has a lot to prove, and with the consistent comparisons between Justin Jefferson and him being the better LSU teammate, it's just sparked like a friendly kind of rivalry between the two, and I think that he's looking to outperform him at some point, if not every week. And I think that Jamar is going to literally look at Trayvon and say, you're a little overrated, bro. Like, let me, let me show you right quick. Come, come, come stand up right let, here, and I, I let, think Jamar going to cook him. Basically, like, let me show you how to do this. Yeah, it's just, I mean, look, when it comes to Joe Burrow specifically, at least he doesn't have to worry about Minka Fitzpatrick on the other side of the ball. Because Minka was everywhere last week. I mean, Minka was getting pick sixes. Minka was blocking extra points. I mean, Minka came up with the biggest play of the game against the 
the Bengals last week. It was absolutely insane. You know, the fact they that he was able to, point. yeah, to save the game for for Pittsburgh, and it led to overtime, and then Pittsburgh was able to capitalize that with the game-winning field goal. I mean, Mick is a ball hawk, bro. He's a he's a top-tier safety, and by and large, I mean, not only did he do it on the defensive side, but to do it on the special teams aspect as well. Huge. That's a huge plus for, for the Steelers. I know we don't we're not really talking about the Steelers here, but I think when it comes to Joe Burrow and what he's going to face against that Dallas defense not nearly the same caliber and what they faced with Pittsburgh last week. I think this is a night and day difference as far as I'm concerned. It really depends on what you want to look at. Obviously they don't have to necessarily worry about the impact of a safety or kind of like a secondary player in this game. They have to worry about that number 11 guy that's lined up in front to say, keep him away from me. Micah Parsons is a nightmare in and of himself. So I won't say that they have less to worry about. I'll just say that their, their worry needs to shift from a coverage standpoint to a, to a complete pass rush standpoint. Yeah. It's just, I think as long as Cincinnati plays smart, I think, like you said, if they have to do more pass pro, if they have to do chips or if they have to do do basically, I'll give you an example. Remember what Leonard, uh, Leonard Fournette did to Micah Parsons last week at pass pro. Do you remember that play? Absolutely I do, and him. freaking Micah Parsons saying that that was not a good play and whatever, and they went back and forth on Twitter. Micah needs to stop being soft. Bro, it's football, dude. He got cracked. Bro, you got he got cracked. It's okay. Dude, people get cracked in football all the time. It happens to the best of us. Just accept it. Listen. Correct. You got cracked. That play actually went for Julio on like a 45, 50-yard bomb from Tom. Yeah. But I, I'll never forget the, the game cast. I remember um, Chris Collinsworth um was on the, the commentary. Mind you, he was battling some own issues with his voice as well. And he was like, whoa, when Leonard Fournette hit him. Because that was a hell of a hit. That was a shot. And so, and, and to do that at a pass pro is kind of nuts. You know, when you pick up a blitz and you're able to knock down a linebacker, that's one thing. But, I mean, he cracked him. So, you know, to get to get a pancake from your running back in pass pro in week one. That's a that's a good sign for Tampa. At least they know how to pick up blitzes. So, but overall, I I think there's a lot of pressure on the Bengals to get this win. Because I think Big time. if they fall 0-2, it's going to shock a lot of people. Not, not going to end their season. This team has every reason to come back from an 0-2 deficit. But I don't think a lot of people were expecting that outcome in the first two weeks of the season. Not I sure as hell didn't. But... With that said, we are going to transition to an NFC North battle that is going to take place between the Chicago Bears and the Green Bay Packers. Uh, To give you guys a recap of what happened between these two teams last week, uh, the Bears were able to come out on top against the 49ers and was probably monsoon-like conditions. And in all places, it took place in Chicago. It didn't happen in Miami. It didn't happen in Jacksonville. But in Chicago, the the field was absolutely soaked. Uh, The Bears, I remember at the end of the game, uh, they ended up kneeling it in victory formation, and pretty much everybody on the offense kind of slid into the end zone. And probably slip what was, and slide. Yeah, it was kind of one of the more of the cooler moments uh, from week one last week. Uh, but to get a solid home win against the 49ers is a good way to start their season. And then when it comes to the Packers, uh, the Packers had a pretty weak performance against the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, the Vikings pretty much handled them, I would say, pretty convincingly in that week one win against Green Bay. You could tell that uh, that Aaron Rodgers was a little bit frustrated with his receiving core and just overall running routes, receivers dropping passes. Just the offense was kind of sputtering, to say the least. 
Uh, Green Bay did not put up a lot of points in that game. They were held to single digits by the Vikings defense. And the Vikings defense isn't particularly known to be a top-tier defense. So there could be some issues lingering from that week one matchup when it comes to the Packers going into week two. Now, Kevin, to kick this one to you, in this NFC North battle that's going to take place between the Bears and the Packers, who do you think is going to come out on top and why? Uh, this one's a tough one for me. Uh, I I can't lie. No, I feel like I've been saying that all night just because of the you know the comparisons that I have in my mind going for what team I believe is going to come out on top. But I'm going to go with the Packers. Uh, I truly believe that Aaron Rodgers and that offense have been going at it in practice all week. I feel truthfully that Aaron and those receivers have basically become butt buddies at this point to where they have gone everywhere together. They have done nothing but practice on how to catch the ball, where to catch the ball, where they like to receive the ball in certain parts of the field. And I think that Aaron has just, he has no choice. This is the group that he has to deal with all season long. Unless Green Bay goes out and makes some crazy trade for some absolutely stud wide receiver that no one's ever heard of. I truthfully don't think that this is going to change anytime soon. Um, Obviously the run game was effective last week and they were able to be somewhat decent and consistent with obviously Aaron Jones and AJ Dillon. But I'm going to need to see a lot more from Aaron and that receiving core for the sheer fact of if you don't make improvements now, it's only going to get worse as the season goes on. But on the Chicago side, I'm looking at this and I'm saying as good good as Justin Fields was last week, he had less than a 50% completion percentage. It was absolutely horrid on the rain side. So, I mean, I'm not really going to look into this and say that his numbers were skewed or that they were bad because he had a bad game when any quarterback is going to be playing in weather conditions like that, they could have had a worse game than he did. So I'm going to say until I see some significant improvement in his throwing mechanics and his decision-making, and of course their effectiveness to stop the football on the defensive side with the departure of Khalil Mack and a couple of other defensive players, I don't necessarily know if Green Bay hits some kind of rhythm, if Chicago is going to be able to stop them. I would probably say that to support our NFC North rankings, Chicago is probably the worst team in this division just because from what I saw last week in Detroit, I think that Detroit's offense and defense did enough to prove to me that they are getting better as their, you know, the years progress. But again, for the sake of this game, I think that this very well could end up being a blowout anywhere from 14 to 17 points. I think Green Bay probably ends up on top probably anywhere from... I don't know, 35-21, 35-17, something of that nature. But I think that Green Bay bounces back, Aaron Rodgers calms down, and Chicago kind of comes back down to earth. I mean, Kevin, I'm with you on this one. I do believe that the Packers are going to come out on top. Uh, I just have the score a little bit lower. I don't think it's going to be like the Packers are going to score 35 points. I just don't think that offense is to that point yet. But I'll kind of get that later on in the uh, analysis. The way that I see it, you know, when I look back at the Packers last week against the Vikings, they were pretty horrendous. To only score seven points against a pretty mediocre Vikings defense. I understand that the Vikings uh, made some acquisitions to bolster their defense, specifically with Zedarius Smith going from Green Bay to Minnesota. You know, I will say that the Vikings defense kind of played up the snuff last week, but all things considered, when it comes to the Packers offense, I mean, this is a completely retooled offense. This is not the same offense that we saw the last couple of years with what the Packers had at their disposal. Devontae Adams is no longer there. And I mean, outside of Randall Cobb and Alan Lazard, it's essentially a new crop of receivers when it comes to Aaron Rodgers to be able to throw to at his disposal. And if you look back at that Vikings game in particular, I mean, Christian Watson dropped what would probably have been a touchdown had he caught the ball and you could tell that Aaron Rodgers was definitely 
uh, miffed about that because I will say, if anybody had watched that Packers game, you could tell that the eye rolls, uh, his just overall disposition was kind of in midseason form already as far as just his overall stress level. Just you could definitely tell that there's a lot of growing pains when it comes to the receiving core with the Packers. And I think that's something that's going to linger throughout at least halfway through the season. I think it will improve towards the second half of the season, but there's going to be some bumps in the road for Green Bay as far as their offense is concerned. I think the biggest thing that the Packers can do here in this matchup is just try to shut down the Bears offense. And like you said, Kev, I understand that the Bears were playing in basically like, I won't say hurricane conditions, but they were playing in monsoon-like conditions where it was raining constantly. The field was essentially a slip and slide. The Bears did nothing to prove to me that this team is going to run circles around the entire division. Just because Justin Fields was 8-17. of He threw for 120 yards, and I understand that weather was a factor. I just don't think that the Bears have the requisite pieces to be able to get an offense that's going to score consistently around 20 to 25 points a game. And this is going to be a test for them because, you know, last week, I'll, I'll give them a pass based on the rain. But, I mean, when it comes to their overall production... I just think they're going to struggle and we got to see what happens when it comes to Justin Fields and a potential pass rush that Green Bay is going to present him. Because when you look at the Bears from last year, the Bears, I believe, were the the, the top team as far as giving up sacks. They gave up the most amount of sacks compared to any other team last year. And Justin Fields was at the receiving end of a lot of those sacks. And I imagine something like that is going to continue going into this year. Maybe not at the same extent as what it was last year, but Take away last week, you know, to me, this is going to be like their first real test. And I just don't think that the Bears are going to be ready to handle the challenge as far as going up against Green Bay. Green Bay has had their number for years. I still believe that Aaron Rodgers is a far better quarterback than Justin Fields is at this current point in time. And overall, you know, when I see this game getting played out, I think the Packers win this one convincingly. Um, I do believe that they probably win this one by 10 or 14 points. I think it's going to be a two possession win. But I think the Packers are only going to score around 24 to 27 points. And I would really be surprised if the Bears crack 20 in this one. Bears cracking 20 points would be best case scenario for them. I think they're going to score around 14 or 17 points when it's all said and done. That's just kind of how I see this one playing out. But yeah, I think the Packers get the dub in week two against the Bears. It's... I'm trying to be nice. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not trying to discredit no, Chicago. No, I'm not trying no, to say... no. Be honest. We're unfiltered here, bro. Be it's honest. not even about that. It's just, I want to see Field succeed, man. I liked him in Ohio State. Oh, I he really was great. Did. Oh, he was great. I'm not. I I'm like, not I like David Montgomery. I, I like David Montgomery. I like Cole Komet. I like, you know, Daryl Mooney. Like, they have some solid young players, and it's just sad that it's like that franchise does not want to help. I mean, I don't believe they did anything on that offensive line to help Justin get protected. I don't think that they did anything in the offseason to assist within the wide receiver core outside of losing Allen Robinson. I j- you can't really cheer for a team that doesn't want to win. It's almost like they, they, they go into a season every year and tank. And the only reason, just to kind of close this out on my side, the only reason I believe that Green Bay is going to score that much is because I think that Aaron is going to lean on the run game if the receiving core does not do anything or if they're going to repeat the failure that they had last week. Give the ball to Aaron Jones. Run some screen plays for him. You know, give yeah. the ball to AJ Dillon at the goal line. Like, let the running backs that you have in that backfield do the thing that they do best and put that thing downhill. So if they end up getting 14, 21 points just from running backs at the goal line and he tosses a touchdown at the goal line to Robert Tunyon, and that's assuming they can get to the goal line, um, 
I think that that's going to be best case scenario. So like I said, I, I can see it going up to 35, but if it was at 28 or 24, I wouldn't be surprised. And, you know, at, at the end of the day with it being Chicago, if Fields goes out there and, and throsses, throsses, wow, throws a touchdown, I would say that that's probably, again, best case scenario. I don't necessarily know if he's going to be able to find anything with Jair Alexander being frustrated from last week as well. I think there's one piece that we're missing here when it comes to the Bears. Because, I mean, when it comes to their overall targets, as far as what Justin Fields is able to throw to, Kevin's kind of weak on paper right now. Kind of? Yeah, I'm being... Okay, yeah, it's very weak. But you know who's going to be the savior when it comes to their wide receiving core? The greatest training camp receiver of all time. When he comes back off of IR, the one and only... Kyle's favorite Nikhil, player. Nikhil Harry. I, I, I mean, I'll tell you this Moore. right now. When Nikhil Harry comes back and starts playing with the Chicago Bears, I'm telling you, the Bears might be the best team in the league. I, I'm saying he has that type of impact, dude. I mean, I don't know any other receiver that puts up numbers like Nikhil Harry does. I, I just, His I've upside never, is pretty high. I've never seen anything like it. And I imagine you know him and Justin are going to be like best friends when Nikhil gets back on the field. And I mean, I'm being a little bit facetious here, but I think Nikhil Harry, he's the guy. He's the missing link for Chicago. I think once Nikhil Harry gets in this lineup, Bears are going undefeated, bro. That's just, nobody's going to be able to stop him. And I in mean, case any of you were going to say anything stupid, it's sarcasm for those of you that don't yeah. have social cues. So just wanted yeah. to throw that out there for anybody that I, really wasn't paying I, attention. I, you know, Kev, I think we have to inform the people here on this one i'm gonna look up Nikhil harry's uh career stats and you know mind you there's a reason is, ladies and gentlemen there the, the, is the, a reason so okay we'll, we'll take last year for example just looking at last year's stats when he was on the new england patriots he had 12 catches for 184 yards that's almost a catch per game almost justin, justin jefferson just did that in week one Basically, when it comes to overall production. And he has more touchdowns than what Nikhil Harry had all of last year. And if we actually kind of drag this out to career stats, Nikhil Harry has 57 catches and 600 yards receiving. Four touchdowns. Just, just Justin Jefferson might have that by week seven. I, I mean, maybe earlier. This is like, like Hall of Fame type stats here, you guys. And mind you, this is not in like three or four games. This is three or four years. <laughs> I mean, this is this is what we're talking about. I mean, training camp player is one thing. Greatest training camp player that we've ever seen. Never seen anything like it. But when this dude gets back, it's game over for the league, bro. I mean. You leave that man alone. Do, do I bully too much? Do, do I bully? It's not bullying. It's just, it's kind of funny. I just, I I will say this. It, it, I'm taking all of the sarcasm out of this. I, I, I'm being 100% honest here. When he was doing his run blocking with New England last year, I have to say he was phenomenal. The fact that he was able to block so effectively and open up run lanes for the running backs for New England, he was solid in that regard. He was throwing freaking chip blocks. He was cracking corners. I mean, he was cracking DNs. I mean, I understand, like, when it comes to his overall receiving game, it's not really that strong. 
but I can't believe that New England was actually able to utilize him effectively to be, just be able to open up run lanes. I mean, granted, he may not get separation from anybody. I mean, basically, when it comes to covering Nikhil Harry, it's like guarding a parked car. Like, it's not that difficult. But I will say, at least he could block. He actually is a decent blocker. I I, I was I, mad I, that I New know. England... I was mad that New England didn't convert him to a tight end. Because if he was if he were to line up as a tight end, he could be a problem. But I just don't think that teams are going to make that investment to, to transition him to a tight end. I just I don't think they will. I've I've had enough. I think I think we're going to move on cuz you just trolled that man's entire life. I did. I don't think I don't think he deserves that. He didn't do anything to you. But anyway, he didn't um, yeah, I mean, he was he's a first round pick and I mean there were some there's some players that we missed out on, AJ Brown being one of them. It's okay. We traded for Trent Richardson at I, I, one point, and I, we all know how that ended up. I, I, I think Debo. We passed up on Debo too, if I remember correctly. I mean, anywho, um, I guess one of our final topics. Well, before we actually move off of football, um, just wanted to kind of put this as a passing note. Jamal Adams, a safety for the Seattle Seahawks, is unfortunately out for the year with a torn quad. Um, you know, he kind of got injured relatively early in the game against the Denver Broncos last Monday night. And, you know, we wish him a full and speedy recovery. Um, since he's left the Jets, it's been kind of a joke. He's been injured pretty much every single year. He pulled his groin two seasons ago. Obviously, he's out for the year probably this year. I mean, he just cannot catch a break. So, again, speedy recovery to him. When healthy, he is one of the better uh, safeties in the league, especially when it comes into the pass rushing atmosphere of him being sent to rush the quarterback. But his career obviously has dwindled statistically since then. But again, no harm wished upon him, and I hope that he uh, recovers pretty well. Yeah, those quad injuries are just awful. I mean, I remember when Stephon Gilmore he tore his quad when he was with the Patriots a couple of years back. You know, you just tear your quad in any way, shape, or form. It just feels like you're never going to be able to recapture like the same play style that they had previously just because I mean when it comes to your legs I mean you're generating all of your power from your quads you know and I, and after you have it surgically repaired you may get like an 80 to 85 percent return on investment after it you're never going to get 100 percent after that one you know ACLs ACLs MCLs LCLs whatever sort of ligament you want to call out in the knee I will say that used to be a career-ending injury. Now it's something that you could probably recover recover from in six to nine months. But when it comes to just ACLs and quads, quads I think are just devastating injuries. I mean, Kevin, you remember when um when Victor Oladipo tore his quad a couple he was years out ago? Like two years. I, two years. I, I mean, that's a significant injury, and like you said, you know. You know, I never, you know, want to see guys get hurt. You know, obviously it just kind of comes with the territory and being in the NFL, but you know, when it comes to quad injuries, that's a devastating injury because all your power is generated is for, for your speed. It all starts in your quads. And, you know, you just hate to see the guy go down like that with an injury like that in the first week of the year. It's just it's a devastating injury and you know, wish nothing but the best for him in a speedy recovery. But yeah, the the, the quad injury like I remember when I was younger, I was always kind of like surprised at like, okay, it's a quad injury, you know, 
I don't I don't understand what, like why it's such a big injury. Mind you, I'm kind of speaking about this when I was younger. I didn't understand it. It's like, yeah, you generate all your power from there. All yeah. of it. I mean, I probably like the strong it's one of the strongest parts of your body. And when you're able to, you know, you're not able to effectively push off of it just because it's torn. It's it's game over. You know, it's it, you know, like that type of injury, the the Achilles one, that that's still like a very weird injury to me. That when that one happens, it, it's very scary. I don't know oh, why. Oh, weird. I was like, why is it weird? Because it's an injury where you could actually hear it if you're close enough. Oh, the pop. It's the pop. Because that freaking Achilles tendon is, is really wrapped tight. Whenever there's a tear, I mean, you could hear a pop. Yeah, you know, that's the, a fact. Yeah, that that's why I always kind of consider it a weird injury because you could actually hear it. It's just, ugh. Kind of makes your freaking body struggle. Like, it makes your body shiver after that one. But, yeah. But no, I mean, you know, hope that uh, Jamal Adams can... Uh, come back from this injury. Obviously it's a, it's a very difficult injury to come back from, but uh, wish nothing but the best for the guy. And um, I think before we end up wrapping this up, I think we are probably going to pay our respects to uh, Roger Federer. Uh, he is announcing his retirement. I mean, the guy's 41 years old and he has been, I mean, just a model of consistency of success in the world of tennis. I mean, Kevin, I mean, we, we've been watching Roger Federer since we were high school, like younger, like junior high in elementary yeah, school. He's yeah, been no, playing wrong. He's been basically playing professional tennis for what, 15, 20 years. Yeah. I mean, he's been at this for a very long time. And I mean, his resume speaks for himself. I mean, he has 20 grand slam titles. He yeah, has I said 21 at the beginning. I meant 20. He, he has eight Wimbledon titles, singles. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. I think he also has five U.S. Open titles as well. Just and he has five year-end number one overall rankings. Like that's just his it, career is one for the record books. Like he is someone not to be slept on. Yeah, just Kev. Just you know, take some time here to uh, reflect on the career that Roger Federer has had in the world of tennis. I mean, as someone who played tennis in high school, as someone who is an advocate for playing it on the regular and, and as a Rafa Nadal fan myself, the two of them always, always went at it. And for whatever reason, Rafa just in the earlier portions of when I watched tennis just could not beat Roger like at all. Uh, grass was his was his place. Obviously, Rafa's known for clay, but even on the clay, uh, Roger gave, you know, Rafa a run for his money, man. And for him being number one, as long as he was year in and year out until Novak kind of took it and Rafa took it back. And it kind of just, it was between the three of them for a long time, just going back and forth, uh, trading for that number one overall spot. You have to look at it and say, as Kyle alluded to, probably one of the most consistent players that have ever played the game. I mean, for the most part, he has just been one of those people that if he's in a tournament, if he's healthy and if he is able to be there without a moment's hesitation, you can't really go out and pick somebody for a clear-cut favorite if Roger was there. I mean, obviously, again, like I said, every player has their specialty with the type of, uh, you know, platform ground they want to play on. And, you know, Roger was able to do it for the most part on all, all surfaces. But when it comes to some of the greatest tennis players of all time, you, you, you have to put Roger Federer there. There's, there's just no, there's no if, ands, buts. There's no open discussions. There's no, well, kind of, I'm not saying he's the greatest. He could be in the discussion for it because of the amount of grand slams that he has. But 
for what he was able to do for the sport, for how long he was able to do it for the sport, and at the level he was able to do it for such a long time, you have to tip your cap, man. Roger Federer, cheers to you, bro. You, you really were game-changing for the sport. And I'm not just saying that because you're retiring. Again, as someone who watched a lot of tennis growing up, obviously you playing my favorite player almost in every tournament, it, it, it was something to admire and, and something to be respected. So, you know, the world of tennis will miss you. But again, you know, kudos to an entirely great career and uh, hope you enjoy retirement. Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at the time that he turned pro. He turned pro in 1998. Dude, I was four. I, I, dude, I was three. The guy has been professional tennis player since, if I have my math right here, since 17 years old. He was 17 years old when he became a pro. He was, yeah, because he, he's 41 years old now. He's been a professional for 24 years. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, he's been, he's been a pro tennis player more than half of his life. And I, just to kind of put things in perspective here, when he turned 27 years old, he surpassed Pete Sampras's uh, singles titles record. So just to kind of put the number here, Pete Sampras had 14 uh, men's singles titles. And Roger passed that at 27 years old. That was 14 years ago. I mean, that's insane. You know, to put up numbers like that so early in his career. And Roger was probably just getting into the prime of his career at that point. I mean, it's absolutely insane. And it's just, you know, Kev, like you said, there's not really much more I can say other than what you already outlined. But yeah, I mean, when it comes to like this era of tennis, I mean, you got to put Roger up there. I mean, the other two names that come to mind are Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal. I mean, everybody else is kind of in a really kind of a lower tier after that. But it's those three guys, as far as I'm concerned, that are in that upper echelon of tennis players for this generation and Roger definitely deserves to be in that conversation of one of the best tennis players that's ever played the game. The numbers and the titles speak for itself. The guy was just a model of consistency throughout his entire career. And uh, it's unfortunate that, you know, we're seeing his professional career come to an end, but I mean, I think it's safe to say what a career really, what a career. Thanks. But, um, Kev, I think that pretty much wraps it up for us. So uh, I got nothing else to add here. We've pretty much covered everything. Um, is there anything else you want to dive into or discuss before we wrap this up? I forgot. We were supposed to do our fantasy prediction of a player that we believe is going to have an incredible performance this week. And I know that it's random, but I got something for you, too, to put on the spot. So start thinking. Sure. But All right. Put that camera right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, don't, don't worry. I'll I'll give you the lead in. I'll I, don't worry. I got this. So, <laughs> like, so basically, you know, going into week two of the NFL season, um, you know, week one was uh, special in its own way. Had some great games. Had some great individual performances uh, from some great players throughout the league. But going into a new week, we'll see who's going to dominate their individual matchups going into week two. So, Kevin, to kick this one to you. Who do you think is going to be the standout performance in fantasy this upcoming week in week two? So I'm going to the city of Baltimore. I think that J.K. Dobbins in his first game back against the Miami Dolphins, who showed to have a pretty stout defense last week against the Patriots, 
I think J.K. Dobbins is a must-start in fantasy. I think that he's going to absolutely, absolutely torch it just for the sheer fact of when you play with a player like Lamar Jackson, an MVP caliber player, someone that is known as the greatest scrambler in NFL history at this point in his career because of the records he's already been able to break. I think with that RPO, the offense that they run, and him being a very, very physical downhill runner, I think he's going to pop off. I'm not saying 200 yards or anything like that, but if he was able to give you a buck 25 and two touchdowns, maybe about four or five receptions, depending on the leagues that you play in and PPR or not, I think he drops you easily about like 20 to 25 points this week in his first game back. I'm not saying that he's going to go out there, like I said, and break any records. I'm not saying that he's going to be the sole proprietor of the entire Ravens offense, but I do firmly believe that he is going to have one hell of a performance, and I think that that's actually going to lead the Baltimore Ravens to a surprise victory in Miami this week. Yeah, I think, that, that, think that's a great pick. I think, I think when I was looking at some of the players in particular, when it comes to just who I think is going to have a standout performance— I think my pick was Devontae Adams, if I remember correctly. I think Devontae, I guess that, that Cardinals defense, I think he's going to pop off. I, Devontae had a pretty solid start uh, against the Chargers last year in his first game as a member of the Las Vegas Raiders. But I think it's a very favorable matchup. You know, obviously the Raiders are coming off of a loss last week, very close loss to the Chargers. But I wouldn't be surprised if Devontae Adams goes out there, has like seven, eight catches, 140 yards receiving, Definitely gets a touchdown. Definitely gets a touchdown against that that Cardinals secondary. I mean, that Cardinals secondary gave up 44 points to the Chiefs last week. Pat was just lighting it up against that defense. He had five touchdowns by himself. And I think that Derek Carr can have a similar type of performance against that Cardinals defense. Probably not five touchdowns. But I think that Derek Carr could probably go out there and get three touchdowns. And I definitely think that one of them is going to go to Devontae. But I think Devontae is going to have a very solid, solid performance in week two. Uh, this upcoming weekend now so i'm gonna flip it actually because i forgot they're not in miami they're in baltimore um did you have something for me or no no oh so then i'm flipping this i'm gonna put you in the spot who is a must sit for you this week a must sit yeah a don't touch them don't play them god i gotta think here i mean i told you it it was gonna be a boom 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 you know what? Let me pull up the uh, the the week two uh, games here. The slate. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just just so I can kind of look at it here, kind of like look at the teams. You know, listen, I, I could get petty. I could get really petty, and say sit Jonathan Taylor because he's going up against the Jacksonville Jaguars, and Kevin knows this best. Apparently, the Colts do not know how to play football. Playing in, in Jacksonville, Florida, they they Kevin. How long has it been since the Colts have? Beaten the Jags in Jacksonville? I think nine been, years, something like that. It's almost a decade. Just kind of one in Jacksonville, yeah. Which is kind of nuts, right? When you think about it, yeah. We haven't won in Jacksonville basically since I've been an adult, yeah. <clears throat> that's a that's Just a tough one. Painful. Yeah, painful. But uh to get back on track here, if I had to pick one player at C D Lamb, C D Lamb is going up against that Bengals defense and what I think what's going to happen is I think the Bengals are just going to lock down CD and they're going to force Cooper rush uh, to pass it to somebody else in that wide receiving core. I just don't think that the Dallas offense is predicated for success without Dak Prescott in the fold. And even despite that Dak struggled 
against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers last year. I mean, before he got hurt, they only put up three points. We, I, we already kind of mentioned this earlier, but the Cowboys really struggled offensively. And now that Dak is out, which was basically like their last hope for their offense, it's not going to work out for them. I, I think that Cooper's getting a re- really bad situation here just based off the fact that he doesn't have a lot of reliable targets to throw to, CD really being the only one in the wide receiving core to throw to. I just don't think that CD is going to have a good game. I think Cincinnati is going to put a huge emphasis on trying to lock down CD since he is their number one target on Dallas. And I mean, if the Bengals are going to get beat, it's not going to be because of CD. I could tell you that right now. But if I had to pick one player in particular, that'd be one player I'd sit. I'm I'm going with Najee Harris in Pittsburgh. I That's think if he that... plays, though. That's if he plays. Is he not playing? Did he well, get hurt? Really... Well, he was on the injury report. And then it's not like oh, I think he's fifty. Right. I, I, right, right, right. He's, I, I, if I had to guess, I think he's gonna play. But at what? Well, capacity... if it's an injured player, then I then I'm changing it. Then I'm gonna go to I'm gonna go with Trey Lance. I'm I just okay. I had a backup regardless. Yeah. I think that Trey Lance is a viable quarterback. I think that Trey Lance is somebody who can make some noise not only with his arm talent but with his legs. But with Seattle riding that wave that they had last week, beating Russell, with them being the team that said, you know what, we were doubted across the country. We beat Russell at home in his first game back. Obviously, the defense played spectacular for the most part up until, I believe, Russell was, I think, when Russell hit Jerry Judy uh, for an underthrown pass, might I add. Uh, I believe that that defense made a statement. I believe that that defense is going to be able to make some pivotal stops, and they're going to surprise a lot of people. Um Obviously, at the end of the day, they have great talent on the outside with Debo Samuel and Brandon Ayuk, but George Kittle's also out. Elijah Mitchell's also hurt. So I feel like with the lack of weapons, the lack of momentum and confidence, and Seattle riding that wave, I think that that is going to be very, very difficult for him to be successful this week. I don't know what it is with freaking 49ers running backs. They just can never stay healthy. Elijah was healthy last year, though. Elijah got me a good amount of points in fantasy last year as a rookie. I remember Raheem Mostert was on the 49ers, and he could never stay on the field. It's just, you know, the only one that I could think of that was actually healthy for large stretches of his career was Frank Gore when he was a member of the 49ers. Of course. He was an absolute beast. But, man, it, it just seems like the injury bug just gets the 49ers every single year. Yeah, gotta, we gotta start looking. We gotta start looking at that training staff, because that training staff, these guys are getting I feel hurt like they've left been right. fired like a hundred times over already. Camille, yeah, to be honest like, with you, you, you know, it's one thing like you know if a guy gets dinged here and there, but it's like big name players are missing time with the 49ers. I mean, Dude, I remember the year that they lost three running backs in one season. Mostert got hurt, Jared McKinnon got hurt, and Tevin Coleman, like the two yeah. running backs that they got in free agency to make a difference of it. This magnitude that's like for that team, dude. That's a trio. That's a great was, trio in the was, running back field. Was, yeah, was. at the time, yeah. The fact that they couldn't stay yeah. healthy is crazy. Because Coleman got signed from the Falcons. That's when him and Devontae Freeman were going nuts. And then, of course, at the end of the day, that was also when Jared McKinnon filled in for Adrian Peterson the year he tore his ACL, or when he, the year he left, or something like that. To where it was he's like with, he he's stepped up and it was he nuts. was with Minnesota for a little bit. Yeah, and he just absolutely popped off and had an incredible year as well. So um, I don't want to harp too much on you know what we're talking about. It's obviously been a little bit, and I kind of want to close this out on a high note. Um, guys, 
I have to say, once again, just because now that this has become a little bit more of a realization for me and I know for Kyle as well, the podcast is moving in such a good direction um, beyond over the moon with what we've been able to do over the course of the last year and change. Uh, We're seeing success increase on pretty much every single platform that we've been using lately. Um, We're riding the high of, you know, being signed to a a media cast organization out there in L.A. with Electricast. Again, grateful for the opportunity. And and now hopefully the audio is going to take take off. And that's kind of the last piece of the puzzle that we're waiting for us to really kind of get out there and actually gain some traction. So, um, you know, again, for all of you that have been supportive to all our new supporters and followers and subscribers, you know, welcome. You know, this is going to be one hell of a journey. We're just two guys that really love the sport of football and sports in general. And we appreciate you guys riding this 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 uh, this wave with us. And we hope that you guys enjoy content and continue to come back. Yeah, it- I really couldn't have said it any better than Kev. Just I appreciate you guys, you know, giving us a chance and just looking at our content and, you know, hopefully you guys enjoy what we do. Um, it's just two dudes just out here, you know, talking game about Chopping sports. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we do the best that we can and, you know, we try to provide you guys the best uh, content that we can give you guys. And um, if you guys stick with us, I, we were great. We're grateful that you guys are uh, appreciative of that. And, um, Hopefully we continue to get that support uh, from here on out. But um, Kev, I've got nothing else to add other than the fact that, you know, once again, you know, I have to give a lot of thanks um, to the support that we've gotten from Electricast so far. They've been nothing but helpful since we've signed on with them. And uh, hopefully it's a uh, it's a relationship that can uh, build. You know, hopefully we can continue to build and grow with them as time goes on. So we definitely appreciate the opportunity with them. But I got nothing else more to add other than that. So take us on home, bro. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, obviously, this is a Thursday night recording. So you guys will be listening to this Friday. We will, of course, be right back in the booth Sunday evening during more than likely around the halftime era of the Sunday night game. And uh, we'll keep you guys posted with any news, any updates. Of course, we're going to continue to do the fantasy football things, you know, try to create some some more popular trends for our short form content. And then, of course, just to give you guys something different to watch as opposed to the regular things that everybody else is posting out there. So we'll change it up. We'll see how it goes. We'll be testing a lot of different things as the season progresses. But again, we appreciate everybody and we'll be seeing you guys again on Sunday. Yep. See you guys until then. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Welcome to Tuning In to Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonise your mind, body and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning In to Sound Wellbeing today.